Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. When President Joe Biden unveiled the AUKUS deal, a major trilateral defence pact based on the US sharing advanced submarine technology with the United Kingdom and Australia, it was a dramatic move to counter the perceived threat of China and its preeminence in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, this is about investing in our greatest source of strength, our alliances, and updating them to better meet the threats of today and tomorrow. AUKUS was also a clear signal that the United States is doubling down on its commitment to its allies. But which allies? And who gets left out in a world of less solid coalitions? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, are the West's alliances fraying? America's abrupt withdrawal from Afghanistan has prompted talk about a loss of faith among its traditional partners. And for France, its oldest ally since the era of 18th century revolutions and Cold War cooperation, AUKUS has become a breach. Un coup dans le dos. Nous avions établi avec l'Australie une relation de confiance. A froideur has fallen between friends. Cette confiance est trahie. To figure out where that leaves NATO partnerships in a world with new major power and regional conflicts, I'm joined by a retired four-star US general, Stanley McChrystal. He's been an elite soldier for over 30 years, and for five of those, he led America's premier counter-terrorism force and oversaw the capture of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Later, he commanded 150,000 US and coalition troops in Afghanistan, and he's been called America's greatest warrior. Since his retirement in 2010, he's founded a consultancy firm and written several books on leadership. The latest is called simply Risk. So how does a military veteran see the realignment of friendships, enmities and frenemies? General Stanley McChrystal, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks for having me. You are a four-star general. Your father was a major general. Your grandfather was a colonel. Your four brothers are soldiers. I think it's fair to say that camouflage would be on the McChrystal family crest. Did you feel destined, even pressured to be a soldier? And what influenced that choice when you made it personally? It's interesting, and I never felt pressured but I always wanted to be my father because he was my hero. And so I never really thought about another line of work. I just, from the youngest age, I thought I would go into the army. And it turned out that I loved it, which was a good thing, but I just never considered another vocation. And you're a history buff of your grand strategy 
person as well as someone who has walked the walk when it comes to the the battlefield itself. And I wondered if there's any particular military encounter in history that has informed or influenced the way that you lead. Well, it's interesting. I think there are leaders from various wars, American wars, the American Civil War. Ulysses Grant had quite an effect on me watching some of the leaders from different nations during the Second World War. But really, I grew up at a young age fascinated by French Indochina, Algeria, and then the Americans in Vietnam, because my father was in Vietnam. And so that area became interesting to me. So irregular warfare became something that I thought an awful lot about from a young age. But what do you mean by that when you apply it to the kind of conflicts and disputes about conflicts that we face now? If you think when I grew up, I was born in 1954. It was nine years after the end of the Second World War. And in the rearview mirror, the Second World War seems sort of neat and clean, meaning there were good guys and bad guys, and there was a complete victory at the end over Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan. Of course, up close, it wasn't that at all. It was horrific, and it was much messier. But then we entered first the Korean War for the United States, which my father fought in, and then Vietnam, and of course, Iraq and Afghanistan. And all of those are more frustrating because the arguments for them are less clear because it didn't appear to be an existential threat. And therefore, the logic of being involved in them is more at debate. And then the actual execution, because there are lots of terms for regular warfare, war among the people, uh, guerrilla warfare, modern warfare. But the reality is, It is war in which you are in and among populations and you are trying to win the support of populations. And that's difficult business. Your book is called Risk, your latest book, I should say, Risk, A User's Guide. And it looks at how we assess risk in our everyday lives, in our jobs, in our societies, and how we can be more resilient to dealing with it and the uncertainty that it it produces. But I would like you to define risk for us, which might seem like a bit of an obvious question, but I wondered if what you mean by risk in the grand strategic sense, military ventures, etc., geopolitics that we confront today in the 21st century, is that really the same thing as assessing a personal risk about how I cross a road? Do I take my life in my hands in London and, and, and cycle to work? But that's a risk a lot of people take every day and make perfectly reasonable trade-offs. Traditionally, I think most of us think about risk as the intersection between the probability of something happening and the consequences if it does. If I go up on the roof, what's the probability I'll fall off? If I fall off, how bad will that be? But I would ask, we think about it slightly differently. If we think about it as a relationship between those threats which are out there to get us and our vulnerabilities to them. And what I mean is, if threats are external things which we often can't predict or prevent, if we could drive those to zero, if we could just make them go away, then our life would be pretty simple because our vulnerabilities wouldn't matter. There'd be no risk, but we can't. Typically, we don't even predict them well, much less find a way to completely defeat or avoid them. So it brings us down to vulnerabilities. And you say, well, what are our vulnerabilities? In some cases, if you're talking about bicycling across London, well, if you went in a tank, you'd be pretty safe. And so you wouldn't have to worry about traffic. They'd have to worry about you. So your vulnerabilities might be zero, and therefore your risk would be zero. But neither of those 
are really achievable or realistic. So the reality is it's always that relationship. What we can't control typically is those threats that come at us. What we can have a lot of agency over is our vulnerability to them. Because what we do is we let our ability to deal with risk atrophy or grow weak. We give ourselves blind spots or weaknesses that make us extraordinarily vulnerable to things which shouldn't bother us. We draw in the book the analogy to the human immune system because the human immune system is a miracle. Every day it detects about 10,000 threats that come at us, microorganisms. It assesses whether they're dangerous. It responds to those that are, and it learns from it. So it does it better next time. And we don't get up in the morning worried about our human immune system because we just take it for granted unless we get some malady which weakens it and which we know we're extraordinarily at danger. Well, I would argue that we have the equivalent in organizations to risk immune systems. We have the ability to respond to risk, to detect, assess, respond, and learn to the threats that come at us. But we let those risk immune systems weaken. I want to talk to you about a different kind of immune system, to take on your very useful metaphor here, and that's alliance building and how that has changed, which we thought we'd take as one of the core things we wanted to explore with you on the podcast today, the way that friendships, alliances, frenemies, enmities have changed since you started out as a, a soldier. We're in a time when it feels like alliances are much less solid in the Western world. Do you feel that alliances are more fragile? I do think they're more fragile. And I also think that what we've done is we've gotten far enough from existential threats, first Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany, and then arguably in the Cold War, Soviet Union. And so the need for alliances may have diminished in the minds of some people. In Afghanistan, I led a coalition that involved 46 nations, many from NATO, many others, Many came simply because they wanted to contribute to something because they thought the idea of being part of an alliance was very important because not just for Afghanistan, but for the next time, they need to be allied with someone. If you ever went to the grocery store when you were a child and you lost your parents momentarily, it was terrifying. And then we get older and we think we don't need people, but we do need people. And so I would argue that alliances aren't important until they are. <laughs> and when you need friends, then suddenly those friends ought to be, have a relationship that is based on trust and based on mutual commitment. And it's a history to it, a sinew, because you do things for long-term allies simply because you value that relationship and you want to protect it. But I might argue that in the ruthless world of geopolitics and sometimes human nature, we do preference some alliances or we switch alliances. And if we look at the recent signing of the AUKUS deal, that's the accord, which is a diplomatic, technological collaboration between the US, Australia and the UK, part of President Biden's pivot to a clear alliance of, of democracies in the Indo-Pacific. Now, there's a classic example, you could say, of very smart alliance building against, who are we kidding here, against China. Right? Well, that is really, the potential is that it's to see off any Chinese threat. At the same time, the way it's been conducted has annoyed previously solid allies, most of all France. Isn't that a good example why in the end you do have to choose and these choices 
are particularly disruptive right now. I'm reminded of your government's traditional saying, we have no allies, only interests. I, I challenge that. I think nations do have allies because it's in their interest to have some allies who are always there. I think that the recent case is really a diplomatic misstep. I think the idea of, of solidifying the alliance between some traditional allies and creating a little bit more resilience potentially against a rising China makes great sense. I think it appears to have been done inelegantly because France, in fact, is also incentivized to have China opposed by a significant coherent alliance. And so it's, this is not a move against France. But yet if I was French, I could probably feel like I didn't get treated the way good long-term allies should be treated. And so I, I use the term inelegant. Uh, I really think that more consultation, more discussion was probably the solution to that problem. But the keystone was to supply Australia with at least eight nuclear-powered submarines. I mean, someone was going to be the winner, someone was going to be the loser, however you wrapped up the diplomacy. Is it, and however nicely you presented it, is it a deal that you believe to be a significant game-changer? I do, and I think it is important that Australia have significant naval capability. Of course, for listeners, the difference between nuclear-powered submarines and non-nuclear-powered submarines is vast. And eight nuclear-powered submarines with the ability to stay underwater almost indefinitely until food and crew patience runs out is a significant chess piece on the geopolitical board of the Pacific. And having allies with that capability is in the interest of Great Britain, the United States, and, and everyone in that position. So I do think it's important that allies have that kind of capability. We spoke to the former chief Brexit negotiator for the EU, Michel Barnier, on the podcast last week, as it happened. And he did echo sentiments felt around France that it was unfair and not the behaviour of allies. He said, well, what I can't quite work out from your answer is whether you think that France was going to end up one way or the other out of this picture and all that could be added was diplomacy or whether you think he has a point. I think that Australia needed nuclear submarines and we needed to make that happen in the smartest way possible. I know more diplomacy would have helped. I don't know if there was a role for France in providing those or not. Let's look at uh, whether AUKUS works in the big picture as well, and also the risks that it, it may be, be taking. The aim to contain China militarily, preemptively, is clearly at work here. Is this necessary or does it risk adding to a, a spiral of suspicion move and counter move, which we've seen a lot of, of course, ultimately in the Cold War that led up to the Cuban Missile Crisis? Do you have any concerns about it? Well, it's an traditional challenge. If you confront potential rivals, then sometimes you can drive them into further behavior that you don't want, greater competitiveness, arms race, those sorts of things. China has a perception that the West, United States particularly, would like to contain China, would like to, to keep her in, in the limits that we had for almost 200 years from when China really started in decline until it came out 20 or 30 years ago. And so they are naturally sensitive. Now, they have been doing a massive military buildup over the last decades to try to push back the ability of the United States and, and any other allies 
to contain China. I don't see any indications that they are going to slow or reduce that. So I think that increasing the capability to provide as much, and whether we use the term containment or not, to compete against China in a credible way, once we don't have the ability to do that, the other great Pacific power, which is the United States, if we cannot compete against them effectively, then suddenly we have a tilted chessboard and particularly things like the Southeast Asian countries and others are in real trouble. So I think it's important that it be competitive, maybe with a capital C. And sometimes I know that will be upsetting to people, but I think it is a time not for weakness. I don't think we can be timid now. I think we need to be straightforward about it. Uh, How important do you think Taiwan is in this calculus. We've seen Chinese military activity spike there in the past couple of weeks. 93 military planes have flown into Taiwan's air defence zone. The State Department said it's concerned about what it sees as destabilising actions of the, the Chinese. But I think the wider world might also be looking on perhaps in some perplexity, and wondering whether the US is really ever going to seriously consider being on a war footing with China if China did attempt to seize Taiwan. This is an extraordinarily difficult situation because on the one hand, there's an argument on China's part that Formosa, now Taiwan, is a part of China. And why would the world underwrite uh, a rogue part of China having a separate nation for as long as we have. And so there's a logical argument. On the other hand, if you turn around and see what we've seen happen in Hong Kong, and we see that Taiwan could in fact become that flashpoint that causes, almost like the Falcons almost did between Argentina and Britain, become the flashpoint that starts a wider war. I think it's it's not at all implausible. I could see a Chinese leader using a move to Taiwan as a unifying move for internal politics or as a coming out move into international politics. And so the United States and the, and the world needs to really decide where they are on this. The problem is there's, there's always the argument that says, well, Taiwan doesn't matter because it's really far away. And if China took Taiwan, chips would still be available or or whatever rationalization. The danger there is you start to get into conversations about the Sudetenland and other steps that were made in the late 1930s. And I'm not comparing China to Nazi Germany, but that process. And if that process isn't contested, then I think the world could be on a back foot and we could find ourselves in a very difficult situation and not likely a safer one. It's clear that President Biden is shifting his focus, possibly for the reasons that you suggest, towards alliances in the Indo-Pacific. We had a piece published in in The Economist in which two American politicians, Adam Kinziger and Charles Darjou, argued that they would like to see NATO expanded to the democratic Asia-Pacific region, Australia. Japan, South Korea, primarily. Do you agree with that? I mean, I suppose I'm such a child of the Cold War. My background is Russia and Eastern Europe. So for me, NATO's aim was there. Now I seem to be hearing that it ought to be something much broader. Would that be a strengthening move or something that would risk perhaps diluting the North Atlantic Treaty Organization? NATO was formed for a very specific purpose to contest the Soviet Union and give 
European allies in the United States a sense of assurance that under Article 5, we would do common defense. The problem with making NATO the fix-all alliance around the world is the, the power or logic of Article 5 gets weakened because some nations might consider something that happens around the globe as not important enough to warrant their full-throated participation. The important part of NATO was no question mark if you had threat to another NATO member in Europe. And as long as we could convince the Soviet Union, there was no doubt that all NATO would respond, that was an important counterbalance. If you make it a do-everything alliance, then it's a different calculation, I fear. You probably could work some construct, and like Afghanistan was, the coalition of who wanted to go, but it would be different. I think you'd have to have players with a, a high enough stake in it to be completely committed to make it completely credible. Let's turn then to Afghanistan in some ways, an unfortunate uh, example. You were the commander of American and coalition troops in Afghanistan from 2009 to 2010. So what were your thoughts as you watched the last soldier leave Afghanistan in August and that lightning takeover by the Taliban? Obviously, on the personal side, I was disappointed to see that happen to the country of Afghanistan. The Afghan people are people I grew to respect and, and really love. So that's tough. From a mission standpoint, professional standpoint, there was a frustration that we as a coalition didn't do better than we did. We did a lot of good things, a lot of progress was made, but ultimately we failed. And there's no way to put lipstick on the pig on that one. What we should do is study why. You know, there's gonna be a, a hunt to find a scapegoat, a single person who made a bad decision, or someone to say that it was an impossible mission. I don't believe it was impossible, nor do I believe there's a single person or decision. I think it was a failure of our system over time to be as effective as we could have been. And of course, the Afghans were part of that. They have absolute agency in the failure as well. In what I saw and was involved in, it was good people with good intentions working hard, and yet we failed. That should give us great pause because if we can't pin it on somebody bad, then we've got to look in the mirror and we've all got to say, well, if we tried hard, why did we still fail? The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, and the head of Central Command, Frank McKenzie, said they believe 2,500 troops should have remained on the ground in Afghanistan. Do you believe that would have made a difference? Well, President Trump had made an agreement with the Taliban at Doha that we would pull all American troops out. President Biden simply reconfirmed that. In fact, he delayed it. So keeping troops on the ground would have been a change in the American negotiating agreement that we made. Now, I think leaving some would have made a difference. Personally, I would have left a group of troops there. But, but I have to be honest enough to say, I'm emotionally tied into this, so maybe I'm not the person who should have made that decision. I have a great deal of respect for President Biden willing to make a tough decision, even though it's not the one I would have made or recommended. If we've got leaders who are making decisions with the right values and reasonable probability of success, then it's hard to argue with it. Would you not have argued with President Biden about the terms of this withdrawal? I mean, certainly it would appear that many of those who had roles akin to your own did so and were not heeded. No, what I said, I would have recommended different. I would have recommended a different one. But when the president makes a decision, the correct response is, yes, sir, and we do it. As long as you've had your say, 
to provide best military advice, then the system is working healthily. If the leader, the decision maker is a rational person using the right values. That's what soldiers are supposed to do, and that's what they did. That is a big if, and it was actually brought me to something I was going to raise later, but it sort of follows from this. We just mentioned uh, Mark Milley there, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's been in somewhat hot water about whether he broke the chain of command because it's alleged that in the final months of the Trump presidency, he made a call to his Chinese counterpart to reassure him that the US would not attack China. Well, he's defended his actions, but it's a very tricky one, isn't it, in terms of the role of the military in a democracy. Did he overstep his brief? Should he take the consequences? And I can't say I wasn't close enough to it. I've heard accounts where he, all of his actions were taken with the full knowledge of the Secretary of Defense and whatnot. So from that standpoint, I would say not. I would say that the Interaction between civilian and military leadership in any time is always one that is a balancing act. You're trying to get it just right, providing enough military advice, but not encroaching upon the final decision-making authority of civilian leaders and respect going both ways. When you have extraordinary circumstances, as General Milley says that he felt we had, then you say, well, is it incumbent upon a senior leader to take other actions. I wasn't in the, in the position with him. I think that every time we get into that sort of uncharted territory, we need to hope we've got mature people with the best interests of the nation at heart. It seems like we did. And so we seem to have gotten an acceptable outcome. Last word, perhaps, on Afghanistan. How do you think we leave the picture now? I suppose there, there are two main prongs to this, aren't there? One is that the Taliban are avowed enemies of Islamic State. The local Islamic State affiliate was behind the terror attack that killed nearly 200 people at Kabul airport. Should the US and the West treat the Taliban or commence by treating the Taliban as counter-terrorism partners to defeat ISK? Or do you see risks there, speaking of the title of your, your book, that, that would be, uh, shall we say, Panglossian at best, given the past behaviours of the Taliban? It, it would be ironic, but I don't think it's impossible. Taliban are now in, are being accused of not being extreme enough. So the Taliban probably find themselves in a bewildering position. On the one hand, they've got a much different Afghanistan than they led back to, until 2001. 20 years changed the state of Afghanistan significantly, education and whatnot. And so the Afghan people are not who the Taliban left in 2001. So they've got a more difficult place to govern now. And they've got a, a world that is a bit different and that, that the world community, I don't think is willing to completely turn its back and give them space. And the ISIS elements are clearly not ready to either. I think it's very likely that the Taliban may find themselves moving toward a much more sort of rational, conventional kind of leadership, which I think would be interesting to see. I'm not guaranteed that will happen. When you say rational, conventional, and I know you weren't exactly suggesting that the, the Taliban were going to become a sort of fans of liberal democracy in anything like the near future, but the plight of women and girls is a truly serious concern, isn't it? And the record on that is execrable in the part of the, the Taliban. Should the protection of the rights of women and girls be m more clearly a part of military campaigns and the calculation about that in the future? Because in this case, it does appear to be 
one of the great promises that was left in the breach when the withdrawal took place. Yes. But Anne, here's a case where I'm going to give you my personal opinion. But sometimes that's its odds with sort of the realpolitik approach to it. If I believe that we should be willing to fight to protect the rights of women and girls, as I did in Afghanistan, and I believe we were right to do, are we right to invade a country for that reason? Does the world have the right to go in and impose a different set of standards on how a country operates culturally inside its borders? That starts to get more problematic. And then we say, well, can other countries come in and and say, for example, if the United States has a death penalty or one nation has abortion and others, is that enough to go in, invade and change a nation? It starts to get very, very complicated. Certainly, I think you know, it's not exactly suggesting waging war solely on the basis of the claims of women and, and girls, but some of our own very good, I think, recent reporting cover story pointed out that where that is not happening, where that is not being respected, there are many other problems of instability flowing for and from that society. Do you at least agree with me on that? Well, I completely agree with that. But if you say that we became proponents of trying to improve the lot of females in Afghanistan, and that was right and proper, but that's not why we invaded Afghanistan in 2001. We went to get rid of Al-Qaeda. Now, would we have gone without the 9-11 attack simply because of Taliban treatment of females? I see no indication that we would have. Now, I think we would have done diplomatic pressure and all, but, but this is where it gets difficult. What's right in our minds and values may not constitute enough to justify war. I need to ask you something tricky before you, you leave. Tricky because it's a aspect of your life that I find utterly perplexing, to be honest, General, and that is one meal a day. I read that you eat just one meal a day, and I'm wondering whether this is part of a very disciplined uh, view of life that has driven your career to the top levels as a soldier and ultimately a general, or whether this is just a, a kind of you know, something that that's become a habit that keeps you mentally fit and has really nothing to do with, uh, with, with the way that you lead or assess other aspects uh, of your job. Yeah, it's a very Zen approach to achieving total consciousness. Now, it's a, I thought I was getting fat when I was being an officer. <laughs> I believed you for a moment, actually. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you could have kept going with that. Yeah, I thought I was getting fat, so I just stopped eating anything but dinner. And now it's a rhythm that is a bit of self-discipline for me. And I, I find it as a barometer of my willingness to stay disciplined, which I think is a good thing. So an army doesn't really march on its stomach. Most of the army does. I just happen to only eat the one meal a day. I certainly wouldn't force it on anybody else. My wife eats about seven. So, you know, <laughs> we even out. General Stanley McChrystal, thank you very much indeed for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And we'd love to know what you think was the Alka steel a diplomatic misstep? That's a view definitely shared by my French guest, Michel Barnier, last week, or a geostrategic game changer worth the bother. And here comes the big one. Would you be tempted to follow General McChrystal's Spartan approach to a single mealtime a day? Personally, I would find that a foray too far. Write to us at podcast at or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. 
General McChrystal spoke about the future of Taliban-run Afghanistan and The Economist has been looking across the border to see what it means for neighbouring Pakistan and its Prime Minister Imran Khan. To read that and more, do head over to our website where you can also sign up to be a subscriber so you'll never miss a beat on world affairs. For our best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. <laughs> 